right, good morning, church. Good to see all of you. If you are a guest with us this morning, welcome. Uh, we're so glad that you're here, even as we begin this new series in the month of December, uh, focused on Advent and focused on the glory of Jesus and his arrival here on earth. So I'm going to give you some time uh, to turn to Zephaniah chapter 3. All right, Zephaniah 3, I'm going to read the whole thing to us together. Woe to the city that is rebellious and defiled, the oppressive city. She has not obeyed. She has not accepted discipline. She has not trusted in the Lord. She has not drawn near to her God. The princes within her are roaring lions. Her judges are wolves of the night, which leave nothing for the morning. Her prophets are reckless, treacherous men. Her priests profane the sanctuary. They do violence to instruction. The righteous Lord is in her. He does no wrong. He applies his justice morning by morning. He does not fail at dawn. Yet the one who does wrong knows no shame. I have cut off the nations. Their corner towers are destroyed. I have laid waste their streets with no one to pass through. Their cities lie devastated without a person, without an inhabitant. I thought, you will certainly fear me and accept correction then her dwelling place would not be cut off based on all that I had allocated to her. However, they became more corrupt in all their actions. Therefore, wait for me. This is the Lord's declaration until the day I rise up for plunder. For my decision is to gather nations, to assemble kingdoms in order to pour out my indignation on them. All my burning anger for the whole earth will be consumed by the fire of my jealousy." For I will then restore pure speech to the peoples, so that all of them may call on the name of the Lord and serve him with a single purpose. From beyond the rivers of Cush, my supplicants, my dispersed people will bring an offering to me. On that day, you will not be put to shame because of everything you have done in rebelling against me. For then I will remove from among you your jubilant, arrogant people, and you will never again be haughty on my holy mountain." I will leave a meek and humble people among you and they will take refuge in the name of the Lord. The remnant of Israel will no longer do wrong or tell lies. A deceitful tongue will not be found in their mouths. They will pasture and lie down with nothing to make them afraid. Sing for joy, daughter Zion. Shout loudly, Israel. Be glad and celebrate with all your heart, daughter Jerusalem. The Lord has removed your punishment. He has turned back your enemy. The king of Israel, the Lord, is among you. You need no longer fear harm. On that day, it will be said to Jerusalem, do not fear. Zion, do not let your hands grow weak. The Lord your God is among you, a warrior who saves. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will be quiet in his love. He will delight in you with singing. I will gather those who have been driven from the appointed festivals. They will be a tribute from you and a reproach on her. Yes, at that time, I will deal with all who oppress you. I will save the lame and gather the outcast. I will make those who were disgraced throughout the earth receive praise and fame. At that time, I will bring you back. Yes, at that time, I will gather you. I will give you fame and praise among all the peoples of the earth when I restore your fortunes before their eyes. The Lord has spoken. Advent means arrival. 
So when we talk about the advent of God, the advent of Jesus Christ, we're talking about Jesus Christ, God making landfall, God getting here. And in scripture, when God arrives, the idea of God coming to earth is a mixture of thrilling and terrifying. It's, it's both of those things. It, the Advent text in the Bible, they have dark tones. They have minor key. They also have jubilant praise and festivity. You, you think about, for example, the first Christmas carol, often called the Magnificat, written by Mary, the mother of Jesus herself. She hears, you're going to give birth to the Christ child. She writes the first Christmas carol. What does it sound like? Here's part of it. He has done a mighty deed with his arm. That is God. He has scattered the proud because of the thoughts of their hearts. He has toppled the mighty from their thrones and exalted the lowly. That, that is this first Christmas carol. Mary wasn't, you know, rocking around the Christmas tree. This wasn't just some kind of trivial dance. There's gravity. There is moment. There's significance in the arrival of God in the person of his son, Jesus. It's a Christmas carol there in Luke chapter 1, and you can see the rest of it, but it's gritty it's got gravitas, it's not just sentimental, it's not just syrup, it's got substance, it's about collapsing thrones, it's about humble lords, it's, it's filled with dramatic reversals where the hungry, she writes, are satisfied and the empty, the rich are sent away empty-handed. These dramatic reversals, these surprising twist endings. That's a classic Advent text, and Zephaniah is another one of them, right? The, the Christmas story, friends, is it's not just all merriment and bright. And we need it to be that way because, honestly, what's the world that we live in? We, we need Christmas to meet broken. We need Christmas. We need Jesus. If he's going to come, we need, to, we need him to come all the way in, into this present darkness and deal with reality the way that it genuinely is. We need Christmas to have minor key. We need it to have dark themes as well. Look, we, let's just face the world that we live in. It's not draped in tinsel out there. It's not draped in Christmas lights. There's, there are deep, profound realities, suffering, challenge, unbelief, rebellion in this world. Even in this room, think about it. There are people in this room barely hanging on. Maybe look good on the outside. Internally, your world is totally coming unraveled. You need something more than just cliches and platitudes. You need, you need a Christ that will come all the way into the wreckage of what's there and start writing redemption on the walls and start writing a new story, right? That's, that's what we need. We need Christmas to get real. We need a redemption project that starts in the ashes of the mess that we've made or the mess that we are or the mess in this world. And Zephaniah 3, so it's, it's a less familiar Advent text than, say, Isaiah chapter 9, and the government will be upon his shoulders and so forth, or Luke chapter 1 in the Christmas carol of the Magnificat. But it's an Advent text Nonetheless, in its Advent text, in this sense, Zephaniah 3 tells us what happens when God gets here. When God gets here, these are the kinds of things he starts 
doing. And we see these things. You fast forward from Zephaniah 3 and you watch the life of Jesus and you see shadows of all of this stuff. Even in his first coming, you see these things are the kinds of things he's after. They're being addressed. And when he comes back, these are the things that he, as he, as he descends, he clicks the apply button and this stuff happens in the world, all over the world. The kingdoms of this world become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ. And so we're gonna see two things unfolding in this text, two realities that Christmas addresses. Number one, justice, evil gets an answer. Evil gets an answer. A name that might not be familiar to many of us is the name Martin Niemöller. He was a a German theologian and a Lutheran pastor. He was considered by some of his countrymen to be, quote, the most potent power against Hitler's dictatorship. But he was captured in 1938, and he would eventually be liberated by U.S. forces, actually, in 1945. But he didn't know that in 1944. And on Christmas Eve in 1944, he preached to his fellow prisoners in the Dachau concentration camp. And he began with these words, which will be familiar to us, but imagine hearing these words bouncing off the walls of a concentration camp. Fear not, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy. The dissonance, right? Good tidings of great joy, which shall be to all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. And after reading that text, these were the first words in his sermon. When Christmas must be celebrated in captivity, it is naturally a rather dismal affair. And then he follows with these words. There is no feast in the course of the year that moves us so deeply as Christmas, that brings back so many cherished memories and intimate memories that awakens in us such strong and deep longings for what has been taken from us. Christmas Eve 1944 in a concentration camp in Dachau, they needed Christmas to get gritty. They needed it to be real. They needed it to enter into real brokenness and fallenness. Here's the point in your notes. Sins committed against us will be judged by God. It's not a syrupy story of sentimentality. In history, God acts on behalf of his people. He rescues his people. He saves them through judgment. You follow that story runs through the whole Bible. You can pick it up in in Exodus when the people are groaning under oppression in Egypt under Pharaoh. And what is Pharaoh doing? He's tossing their babies into the sea. And what does God come and do? He comes and tosses Egypt into the sea. He saves through judgment. He answers evil. Remember, even in the New Testament, when Paul is writing in Romans chapter 12, he says, do not, brothers and sisters, do not avenge yourselves. And then what does he say next? Leave that to God. For God, it is God who says, vengeance is mine, I will repay says the Lord. You follow that story from Exodus all the way to the New Testament, all the way to the book of Revelation when the martyrs who had been slain for proclaiming the gospel and what are they crying out before God Almighty? They're saying, how long before you balance the scales? When are you gonna make it right? When does the other shoe drop, the, the shoe of justice for all that's been done 
wrong here? Is it, look, we're back in Zephaniah, we're back in 620 or so BC. What's happening around us? Well, 100 years ago, the northern kingdom was completely wiped out by Assyria. And about 100 years ago, at that point, the, the kings, even in the southern kingdom of Judah, became puppet kings, vassal lords underneath Assyria, doing whatever Assyria asked us to do, and paying tribute to stave off their appetite. Hey, don't come down here. We'll keep paying you. That's the reality even in the southern kingdom. You back up into Zephaniah chapter 2, the chapter just before the one that we're reading here, and you see toward the end of that chapter, you see this, this list of nations. There's this growing list of nations as you read through the chapter. If you're a nation in the 7th century BC ancient Near East, you don't want to be on that list of nations in chapter 2. Why? Because it's a hit list. And the trigger man is God. And the list is not just some random smattering of nations. These are the perennial enemies of God's people, the ones who had subjugated and oppressed God's people for centuries. And so he says, Philistia, I'm coming after you in verse five. He says, Moabites, Ammonites, verse eight, coming after you. The other shoe's gonna drop. In his name, all oppression shall cease. It's an advent hymn. You know, there are viral videos out on YouTube, and sometimes they're even called bully fails. And I think the first bully fail video that ever came my way, I saw it was a, a camera outside of a gas station picked up what happened where uh, two young men approached, two very tall young men approached a short elderly man. And they were, you can tell from the video, they were being physically hostile and aggressive toward him coming up close, talking to him. And what they didn't know, apparently, is that this man had been a boxer. Uh, they would find out momentarily. Uh, because even in the video, the, the shorter old man kind of leans in, acting like he can't hear what these young men are saying. And he leans in like this, right before a right cross drops guy number one, and a left cross drops guy number two. Two hits, and these two older, uh, younger Tall men are both on the ground, out cold, right? They, they had no idea what they were coming up against. Well, you come into Zephaniah chapter 2, verse 12 and verse 13, and Zephaniah names the two biggest punks in the ancient Near East neighborhood, and their names are Cush and Assyria. And Zephaniah 2 is sort of a gas station camera looking at what happens here. And there's a right cross, and there goes Cush. And there's a left cross, and there goes Assyria. Look at verse 13. He will also, here comes that right cross, he will stretch out his hand against the north and destroy Assyria. He will make Nineveh a desolate ruin, dry as the desert. Verse 15, this is the jubilant. That word can be translated carefree. They don't have a care in this world, right? The jubilant city that lives in security, that thinks to herself, I exist and there is no one else. Those are, those are dangerous words. And they say in verse 15, what a desolation she has become. What, what's happening there as you read, what a desolation she has become. That's Israel humming joy to the world. <laughs> That's Israel saying, in his name, finally, oppression ceases, because for 7th century BC Israel, there's no way to sing joy to the world with Assyria sleeping in the next room. 
Because every time they come in here, they oppress God's people. Look, we, we need to read the Bible in its own context. The Bible is not a manual for how to be a good hippie. It's not just this passive, peace-loving Jesus kind of book. Yes, there are places in the Gospels where you see turn the other cheek, for example, where, where you're getting this clarification moment that God's kingdom is no longer confined to the boundaries of Old Testament Israel, and therefore God's kingdom is no longer defended by swords on, beh- on behalf of the people of God in the Old Testament. But look, just because we come into the New Testament and the church is called to put down their swords doesn't mean God puts his away. He doesn't put his sword away. He doesn't let go of that. And friends, the point of this is, it's good news that God doesn't put his sword away. John Lennon's lyric, imagine there's no heaven. It's easy if you try. No hell below us Above us, only sky. In Lennon's imagination, you keep reading the rest of that song, he thinks that's the perfect world. That, that's when we've arrived, when we realize there's nothing under, there's no hell below, there's no heaven above, there's no one looking, there's no one watching, above us, only sky. Look, that song might sing at Woodstock in 1969. It won't sing in Dachau. That that stuff won't fly in Auschwitz. That won't fly in Exodus chapter one under Pharaoh's oppression. The people would say, above us only sky. Are you saying he's not watching? Are you saying God doesn't care about what's happening down here to us and to our children as my son just got tossed into the ocean? No one's watching. Above us just sky. You listen to our spiritual ancestors in the Old Testament. They're gritty. Their faith is gritty. Listen to Psalm 94, verse three. Lord, how long will the wicked, how long will the wicked celebrate? They pour out arrogant words. All the evildoers boast. Lord, they crush your people. They oppress your heritage. They kill the widow and the resident alien and murder the fatherless. They say the Lord doesn't see it. The God of Jacob doesn't pay attention. In Psalm 94, friends, the only ones singing above us only sky are the oppressors. In Auschwitz, the only ones singing above us only sky were the ones turning on the showers, not the ones having to walk in. Christmas is gritty, and it better be. It needs to be. The Christmas carol that we were singing just a moment ago, O Holy Night, Again, it captures that connection. Chains shall he break, for the slave is our brother, and in his name all oppression shall cease. Christmas isn't good news for everybody. God with us isn't good news for everybody. Justice will be served. There is a day of reckoning. Christmas is good news for the humble, for the broken, for the penitent, for the weak. It's bad news for the proud, the self-righteous, the powerful in this world who oppress God's people. God will intervene on behalf of his people. Next point, sins we commit will be judged by God. Sins we commit will be judged by God. So there's this strange transition 
as you move from the end of chapter two to the beginning of chapter three. So you, re- you come to the end of chapter two and there's all these you know, grocery list of nations, the hit list of nations, and then it comes and zo- laser focuses in on Assyria, right? And then you come into chapter three, verse one, ignore the chapter breaks. They weren't there in the original. Just pretend you're keeping on reading. You don't even know there's been a chapter break. And as you keep reading, you think we're still talking about Assyria. We were just talking about Assyria. But look at verse one of chapter three. Woe to the city that is rebellious and defiled, the oppressive city. Yeah, we're talking about Assyria. There's been no transition. But look at verse two. She has not obeyed. She has not accepted discipline. She has not trusted in Yahweh. She has not drawn near to her God. The princes within her are roaring lions. Her judges are wolves of the night, which leave nothing for the morning. Her prophets are reckless, treacherous men. Her priests profane the sanctuary. They do violence to instruction. You've just seen in those last two verses the structure of the hierarchy of the governance of Israel. Kings, judges, prophets, and priests, and they're all lowlifes. They're all unrighteous. Look at verse five. But the righteous Lord is in her. That's gonna spell bad news, right? He does no wrong. He applies his justice morning by morning. He does not fail at dawn. Yet the one who does wrong knows no shame. You get the impression, if we hadn't heard some of those more descriptive phrases in verse two, you think we're still talking about Assyria. And friends, that's just the point because we can't tell the difference. Israel looks just like Assyria. The church, if you will, looks just like the world. You can't see where the line is drawn between God's people and the nations. And the corruption is total. It's top to bottom corruption. In verse three and four, there again, princes and judges, so there's the government and there's the justice system, and it's a wreck. And then prophets and priests, there's the religious leaders, and they're all sellouts. It's, it's a wreck, right? In other words, that's, that's Israel's best way in the seventh century B.C., of saying, I'm telling you the unrighteousness back here is baked in at every level of society. There's corruption in all directions. We have abandoned our God. That's the reality. The idea of being one way on Sunday and another way on Monday through Saturday is not a new idea. It's not a new concept or a new practice. It is very, very old. You read the Old Testament prophets and they're all over Israel's case for that very reality. Jesus, you come over to the New Testament, he's warning religious leaders about the danger and the the threat and judgment that comes to hypocrites. They come and they gather around the waters of the baptistry there at the River Jordan and he says, who warned you to flee the wrath to come? I'm coming for you. You hypocrites. It stalked the whole of church history, this double life thing. And it's seen in such, such a glaring way, for example, I was reading earlier this year the life and work of Frederick Douglass, who was a powerful force for the cause of abolition of slavery. He himself was a former slave, and he describes in his writing, his autobiography, what it was like from the inside, what he saw with his eyes, what he heard with his ears. He talks about things that happened to his own aunt. Horrible, horrible things. And toward the end of the book, he, uh, 
he quotes a well-known anti-slavery hymn. And note this double life theme that's here. I'm gonna read a few stanzas of it. Come, saints and sinners, hear me tell how pious priests whip Jack and Nell and women buy and children sell and preach all sinners down to hell and sing of heavenly union. They'll talk, they'll loudly talk of Christ's reward and bind his image with a cord and scold and swing the lash abhorred and sell their brother in the Lord to handcuffed heavenly union. They'll read and sing a sacred song and make a prayer both loud and long and teach the right and do the wrong, hailing the brother, sister throng with words of heavenly union. We wonder how such saints can sing or praise the Lord upon the wing who roar and scold and whip and sting and to their slaves and mem and cling in guilty conscience union. A roaring, ranting, sleek man-thief who lived on mutton, veal, and beef, yet never would afford relief to needy, sable sons of grief, was big with heavenly union. Another preacher whining spoke of one whose heart for sinners broke. He tied old nanny to an oak and drew the blood at every stroke and prayed for heavenly union. So often in the Old Testament prophets, Zephaniah as well, and in the New Testament also, God defines righteousness not just by our vertical relationship and what happens in the temple, but what happens when we leave the temple and relate to one another in this world, treat image bearers in this world, how we respond to suffering, to the plight of the orphan, the widow, the stranger, the poor. He calls up that number in dealing with his people Israel. The oppressed, what have you done with the oppressed? Let's talk about real righteousness. What have you done with the plight of the oppressed? Have you added to their burdens or removed their burdens? Let's just talk about real righteousness. That's, that's how God talks. What's that mean positively for us as, as a church? We'll look at this more next week, but I think it means this. Every act of compassion that we engage in in this world toward fellow image bearers counts as worship. God cares deeply about that kind of concrete righteousness. Every time we speak up for the oppressed, every time we out the oppressor, every time we talk and speak up for those who can't speak for themselves, we are reflecting the image of our God whose name is defender of the afflicted. He names himself in that way. You think about this, this motif, this, this strand of Old and New Testament teaching in light of Christmas. Jesus Christ, friends, made real contact with the real world. And when he came, he tweaked something. In other words, he didn't, he didn't leave this to the church and say, hey, you're at your own resources. You got no power to actually do some of the things that I was doing. No, it falls to us. The, the powers of the age to come have spilled out onto the church through the giving of the Holy Spirit so that we're supposed to be shining out this very same purpose. When a broken world says, where is Jesus? The church should say, he's right here. Watch this. Not just in our talk, not just in what we sing when we gather together, although it should be that too. The world should be able to come in. Let's just do, talk about our gatherings. The world should be able to come in here, listen to us sing, listen to what we study, and overhear and eavesdrop on the message of the kingdom. 
and overhear us saying, hey, here's the story, so glad you're here. We've been shown mercy. We haven't figured this out. We haven't gotten our act together. Somebody came for us. He freed us. We were addicted to stuff that was killing us. We were running in the wrong direction. We were resistant to God. He rescued us from certain judgment. That's our story. Jesus came and he lived this perfect life and then he took our guilt, our shame, our crimes against the holy God and he absorbed the full impact of God's justice against my sin and then he rose again three days later and now there's life and now, now into these broken places there's, there's life. He started writing a new story. That's the message they should hear. And what should they see in our lives? We ought to be able to say, hey, you doubt this? Look at this brother over here. Look at the way he's living his life. Look at this sister and all the, all the places she goes and takes this message of light into darkness. Look at this family over here. Look at them learning to live under God's word together. Look at this marriage. Nobody thought restoration was possible. Look at that. Who could explain that? It's the powers of the kingdom of God breaking in to the lives of believers. There's a second movement here. So there's justice and then there's grace. Evil gets an answer and outcasts find a home. Outcasts find a home. And we're gonna see this theme develop more fully in coming weeks, but there is there is a dramatic reversal. I don't know if you saw it or sensed it when I was reading the whole text. There's a dramatic reversal in this passage. The city that is in verse one, rebellious, oppressive, and disobedient. You catch them in verse 20. You catch them toward the end of the passage and they are humbled and restored and singing. There is a dramatic reversal. This is classic Advent text, dramatic reversals. Two-thirds of this book is judgment. Minor key, heavy, gravity language. Verse five, right in this very passage, God comes to Jerusalem in judgment in verse five. Verse eight, the judgment extends over the whole earth. God is gathering the nations in verse eight, and it's not gonna be a good time for the nations. Verse eight, if you just stop there and put a period, this is not a sweet missions text. Oh, look, he's gathering the nations. No, he's gathering the nations to judge them in verse eight. Verse eight, is the only story there would be in this world apart from Christ. If Jesus hadn't come, you put a period at the end of verse eight, and that's it, kindling all of us. No, no hope-filled future. If God doesn't intervene in time, if God doesn't make landfall in Jesus Christ, the future's set, and what is that future? It's an unrighteous, shameless, God-defying world burning before a holy God forever. That's all there would be. You read chapter three, verse one through eight, and you don't see verse nine coming. Verse nine is the twist ending. Verse nine is Zephaniah's early version of, but God, who is rich in mercy. That's, this is a way early, seventh century BC version of that. What happens in verse nine? Here's what happens. God interrupts the sin of his wayward people and interrupts the sin of the nations with two awesome words. I will. And he starts dropping I wills all over this passage. Sovereign I wills. And he adds in a few sovereign you wills, they wills, 
as well. Just look at verse nine and just let these words pop off the page as I find them. I will restore. My people will bring an offering. You will not be put to shame. I will remove your arrogant people. I will leave a meek and humble people. They will take refuge in the name of the Lord. They will no longer do wrong. They will lie down and nothing will make them afraid. What's the point? This is in your notes. Salvation is what happens when a gracious God takes charge. When a gracious God takes charge, I will, I will, I will. And then the people start singing in verse 14. And verse 17 is Advent. God arrives in verse 17. You see those words there? The Lord your God is among you. Look, that passage That's reaching all the way forward to Christmas morning. That's reaching forward. What are we going to call the child? You'll call his name Emmanuel. God with us. God made landfall. God is here. God will save. He'll do all these things. What's he here for? If you ask that question on Christmas morning, what's life going to look like when this one has accomplished his purposes and when they're realized in the world? And the answer is verse 17 through 20. The Lord your God is among you, a warrior who saves. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will be quiet in his love. He will delight in you with singing. And here comes another bundle of I wills. Verse 18, I will gather. Verse 19, I will deal with all who oppress you. I will save the lame and gather the outcast. I will make those who are disgraced re- receive praise and fame. Verse 20, I will bring you back. I will gather you and restore your fortunes before your eyes. The Lord has spoken. It's Christmas. This is what he does when he gets here. This passage ends with God doing what he loves the most. God doing what he loves the most. What does he love doing the most? Removing punishment. Driving out fear. Gathering outcasts and rejoicing over us. These are God's favorite things. This this is what it sounds like when Christmas meets broken. Punishment being removed, fear being driven out, outcasts being gathered in and rejoicing over us from our God. You, You look at that list of things that God is doing and you want to know, why, why would anybody resist this one? Why, why would anybody hold this Jesus at bay and stiff arm him and keep him at arm's length when that's the stuff he brings? Jesus loves bringing about dramatic reversals. He loves bringing life where there was death and light where there was darkness and hope where there was despair and freedom where there was bondage. Friends, that's real Christmas. Those are the presents, if you will, that Jesus brings with him. That's what he does when he gets here. You think about that at a personal level. What does Jesus do when he closes in on your soul personally? He starts writing that story. Redemption story. Can I just say to non-Christian friends who are here this morning, oh, embrace this Savior God has sent. There's not another one coming There is no other hope in this world. There is no other refuge from God's justice. Jesus is the answer. Jesus is the Savior. Trust in him. 
Run to him. So many people in Birmingham live as though if Jesus gets his hands on you, it's the end of your happiness. But nothing could be further from the truth. Nothing could be further from the truth. Look, this series really, in a way, this series is about exploding that myth. And I'm going to grab three big sticks of dynamite in the Old Testament, and the hope is they'll all go up. Zephaniah 3 and Isaiah 35 and Isaiah 11, and we no longer are tempted to believe that Jesus takes joy from us. No, God gets here, and those who are humble and those who are broken before him receive joy. Look, when Jesus Christ closes in on your soul, when Jesus Christ, let there be no mistake, when he gets his hands on you, it feels like rescue. You'll you'll reach for a word in your vocabulary bank that describes what you're experiencing now that you know Jesus, and one of them that'll be just always there is joy. Joy is just always a great option. I know Jesus, and there is this this unshakable, deep-running joy. I hope we see that all month. So church, let's, let's spend this entire month looking up, looking out, taking in the wonder of the incarnation of God's Son.